Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to the playwright Bess Wall, the fast-rising writer whose plays have made a habit of taking seemingly impossible ideas and putting them on stage. Small Mouth Sounds, her off-Broadway hit that went on to tour the country, is set at a silent yoga retreat where nobody's allowed to talk to each other, and the result proves surprisingly compelling and funny. And the full first half of her most recent off-Broadway outing, Make Believe, is performed entirely by child actors, which any rational human would dismiss as the worst idea ever, but in this case became unexpectedly riveting. Wall is currently making her Broadway debut with Grand Horizons, now premiering at Second Stage's Helen Hayes Theater, with a cast that includes Jane Alexander and James Cromwell. Wall, one of only two female writers with a new play on Broadway this season, is here in the studio to talk pranks, poetry, and the lasting influence of Sandy Duncan's Peter Pan. Hi, Bess. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, the last time we talked, uh, you described yourself as a as sort of a prankster as a writer. Um, tell me a little bit more about that and explain to the listeners what you meant by that. Well, I think I'm always interested in um, what seems impossible, doing things that um, haven't been done before, that I haven't seen before, that I think um, will either uh, result in something really interesting or a total catastrophe. And I'm not really sure which. And I'm, I'm interested in going on that journey. And... I mean, one of those one of those sort of pranks is like, hey, let's set a play entirely at a yoga retreat where no one's supposed to talk to each other, right? And yes, yes. Can I do a silent play? Right. Um, was that the original thinking? Was the silence the the impossible part for you? Yeah, I knew before I knew anything else about the play. I knew that the first page of the play would have a monologue from an offstage character because mm. there is speaking in that play. You totally. just yeah. never see the person who speaks. Right. Um, and then I knew that that page had to end with, we will now observe silence <laughs> as sort of, you know, throwing down this challenge. Right. And then, so how do you figure out whether or not it works? Do you, how much of that is you alone in your room? How much of it 
how much of it is you getting into a room with some actors and a director? And tell me about that process. I mean, the really bad news is that I don't think you know if it works until the audience is there. Okay. You know, I really don't. <laughs> that is too bad. It's, <laughs> it's unfortunate. Yeah. Because it would be nice to be able to figure it out ahead of time. Right. You know, and I think about that a lot with playwriting. You know, if you're an artist making a painting, you can make your painting and sort of see what it is and then decide later, like, do I want to put this into my show or not? Right. But as a playwright, you don't really know what you have until the audience is there. Mm. And it's sort of like too late to, you know, back out at that point. So um, I remember with Small Mouth Sounds thinking um, when our first audiences came, like, are people going to fall asleep? Are they going to walk out? Are they going to, you know, and then there's this revelation when they come and they're paying attention. And it's amazing. And then where do these ideas come from then? Do you have a sense of what 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 inspires you when you you sort of latch onto something that you feel like you want to challenge yourself with? Um, it's hard to really say for me, but it, it often feels like a, uh, an impulse that, um, I kind of, uh, uh, can't get rid of, you know, it's like, it's like a little itch that, um, I really need to scratch and it often lasts for years before I actually act on it. You know, I'll feel it bubbling up and I'll think, well, okay, I'm not going to do anything about that idea for another year. And if I still feel that way in a year or if I'm still interested in that exploration, then I'll, then I'll go for it. Um, you know, my play, um, that I did, um, this past fall had a cast of children and a cast of children, (laughs) which is like, (laughs) I mean, I mentioned in the introduction that most people would dismiss that as like the craziest worst idea ever. Terrible idea. (laughs) Terrible idea. Breaking like the 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 quintessential theater rule of you know never work with children or animals. So I I don't know if animals are in my future. (laughs) Yeah I was gonna say I feel like they must be at this point. They might be I don't know. Um I I, I'm not really anticipating that right now but you know that was something where I just thought oh I want to do kids on stage I want to do kids on stage and I felt that way for years you know maybe for five years before I actually figured out a way to do a play about them. Right and so all of that stuff, all of the stuff that the play turned into, that all came later because what Make Believe kind of turned into was kind of this mystery and sort of a thriller and kind of this like unexpected version of telling a story about with young actors and then adult actors. But that, all that just, how did you sort of accumulate those ideas then? Do you even have a sense of how that works? Yeah, well, I started doing workshops with children and figuring mm. out what was interesting to watch them do, what felt outside of the comfort zone for them, mm. and figuring out how to write for them. That's really interesting. Yeah. Or must have been really interesting. It was. It was. I mean, I quickly figured out that um, the scenes that I wrote for them you know, had to be short. So mm. the way the kids' part of that play is constructed is a bunch of short scenes. I realized right. like, you can't do a 10-page scene because it's, the shaping of it doesn't quite work. You have to sort of mm. shape it with the text and with the blackouts in between the scenes. And then also um, I learned that it's really fun to watch them pretend so mm-hmm. that you can sort of uh, lean into the theatricality of being a child and not try to create a sort of naturalistic vocabulary for them. So I, I learned a lot about what they could do and I learned from them. And how were you under, were you, was that a commission at the time? Like how do you end up with the resources to get a bunch of child actors together and sort of play with them in a room? Well, I had a commission from Hartford Stage, Mm -hmm. and I called them and I said, like, here's a play you're never going to want to (laughs) do. And um, I spoke with Elizabeth Williamson, who was the associate artistic director there, and I said, "Um, you know, this is something no one's going to be interested in, but I'm just going to tell you because I am. And she was like, no, I think that sounds interesting. Okay. And then she got a bunch of local children and wow. um, they showed up. And, and originally the play was going to be only children. That's mm-hmm. another thing I learned. Like, 
four days into the workshop, I was like, I think this play should have a second half that's adults, and I'm interested in writing that sort of in conversation with the kids' part. So that was where that came from. And your new play uh, is in the middle of making its Broadway premiere, and uh, what was the prank that sort of inspired that play? Well, um, I don't want to give all of it away. Right, because there's one thing that happens that I feel like also was probably in your head as a prank. Totally. totally. We're not going to talk about it. Spoilers. Well, I mean, yes, we're not going to talk about it, but if you think about me as someone who's sort of wrestling with convention and theatrical Mm -hmm. convention and interested in breaking convention, there's a way in which this play breaks convention in a very sort of um, uh, intentional way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, I was also, I had written a play about children. I was interested in writing a play that starred two 80-year-old actors to sort of examine the other... Yeah, summarize the the plot of the play, actually, for listeners who haven't had a chance to see it yet. So it's um, a play about a couple who um, decides or to contemplate divorce right after uh, their 50th wedding anniversary. So, um, and then, you know, really I think the play is also about the effect that that has on their adult children and the way that the parents stepping out of their sort of expected roles forces everybody in the family out of their roles and um, uh, what happens when a crisis like that hits a family. So um, I'm sort of exploring love over time and marriage and family and uh, whether love can sustain itself long term. And this play, like a lot of your plays, has sort of a big ask in it. Like it is a thing like, oh, hey, let's get a stage full of child actors on stage or, oh, hey, let's let's do a thing which shall not be revealed in this play that uh, that uh, some more sort of conventional or timid sort of theaters might be like, oh, I'm not really sure we can do that. How how do you find how easy it is to make those asks of the theaters and the theater artists that you work with? Well, what I have realized, actually, is that the more you ask, the more you get. Um, I think I started my career thinking, oh, I'll just make a play that's really, quote-unquote, easy to do. I'll do two characters. It'll be one set, and, you know, it'll be very Because that's what you get sort of counseled, right, is to two-character play in one room with a table or whatever, right? Yeah, but what I have learned in a way is that all theater is really hard. I mean, even two characters on a single set is really hard to pull off. Um, So um, why not do the crazy thing that's in your imagination? And then I've also learned that um, people are really excited by that challenge, and it sort of lifts everybody up to meet it. So you put a big ask in front of a director or a designer or a cast, and they're like, oh, this gives me an opportunity to uh, meet that, and it invigorates everybody, and um, that's the part of the collaboration that I really love. And this play, Grand Horizons, uh, first premiered over the summer uh, at the Williamstown Theater Festival. What did you learn from that first production, and then how did that sort of influence how you thought about and shaped the play after that? I learned so much. Williamstown is a wild experience, because it's a very compressed rehearsal process. I think you have about, like, a day and a half of tech, which, you know, in the normal world you have like over a week of tech. So, um, and then you just go for it and you just do, you have one preview (laughs) and then you open. Um, so, um, it's kind of this wild, um, opportunity to just put everything in front of an audience for the first time. And you really don't know, you know, this 
plays a comedy, but I didn't know, you know, is anything in this going to be funny? Are people going to laugh? Are people going to go with the story? What story are they following? Um, and so it was really about just figuring out how the play met an audience and, and sort of understanding um, what the shape of it wanted to be. But it, that was really just the very first baby step in our process. Since then, we've been revising, going back through the script, and um, just working to shape it even more. In that, was there anything, did you discover anything in terms of what the play is about that surprised you? I did. I I discovered um, a lot of things actually there that that surprised me. I mean, the what was most interesting was seeing how people related to these characters and mm-hmm. seeing the different points of entry for people. That some people, older people, would come in um, relating to the eighty-year-old couple. Younger people would relate to the children very strongly. Also, there's a lot of sort of. Uh, gender questions in the play about how women see things and how men see things typically. And so, you know, it was interesting to to start those conversations with people and understand that better. Um, People, this play's kind of a Rorschach test. People bring their own feelings about marriage, love, commitment, family, all of that to this play, and they really um, project a lot onto it. And that's been a really interesting conversation to start to have. We should talk a little bit about some of the, about the people you're working with on this Broadway production of Grand Horizons, because it's kind of a crazy good cast, starting with Jane Alexander and James Cromwell as the, you know, the older couple that you were talking about. But then we've got Michael Urey and Ashley Park and uh, Ben McKenzie, and I'm forgetting a couple. Priscilla Lopez. I know. Like, who else? I, know. <laughs> I feel like I'm forgetting even another Malik, person. But, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and what what do you feel like they have brought? Because um, none of them were in the Williamstown production. If I'm, or no, Ashley was. Is Ashley, that right? Priscilla, and Malik were in the Williamstown Oh, all three of them were. Okay. So it, it sort of divided up in this really um, clean way where the whole family, because mm-hmm. um, Jane oh, yeah, right. and Jamie and Ben and, and Michael are sort of four family members, right. they are all new. And mm-hmm. then the sort of um, outsider characters um, all stayed with it. And what, do you, what does this... What has this new sort of group of actors and this team of creators like helped helped bring out of the play, do you think? Anytime you see a new actor in a part, it's fascinating because certain colors come out of the part that you just didn't know were there and things resonate in a different way. And it's always sort of humbling as a playwright because you think that the words on the page are like the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then you get a new cast and you get the design and you realize like, oh, I've done a tiny, tiny sliver of the work of this play. And it's actually this huge collaboration. Um, Jane and Jamie uh, have been so incredible because they really are 80, both of them. So there's no acting, you know, up in age. They're bringing their full humanity, all of their experience, all of their both career and life experience to the play. And, you know, the one thing as... um, as a writer who is not 80, mm. yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't quite um, get my head around is what it feels like to be at that stage in life. So they've offered so much of their own perspective and their own experience. And, um, you know, there, it's funny, there's a line in the play where Ben McKenzie's character says to his parents, you know, you're almost 80. How much else even is there? <laughs> and everyone in rehearsal was like, oh, that's such a cruel thing for him to say. And Jane looked at us all and she said, it's true. Right. It's true. Yeah. You know, and it's like they're bringing that um, reality to the show. And that is a very moving and um, just enriching thing to be part of. Yeah. I'll have more with Best Wall right after the break. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Stagecraft with the playwright, Bess Wall. And one of the things that's interesting about sort of the trajectory of your career is that you didn't start out as a writer. You started out wanting to act. Tell us a little bit about sort of what your original idea for your life was and then how that shifted uh, over yes. the years. A failed actress, <laughs> basically. I mean, it's not entirely true. I feel like you were working. You were... Yeah, yeah. It's good. To, I think it's good to have a lot of failure to yeah. draw upon if you want to be a writer because writing is, you know, about sort of being in a state of vulnerability and misery most of the time. Um, yeah, I, so I went, I thought I was going to be an actress. I went to drama school at Yale. Right. I studied acting. And then I mean, I, so first of all, you, yeah. were, you got into Yale as an actor. Okay, like, that's yeah. a big deal. I mean, that's, but so, okay, you okay. did that. And so then I did. At, and, at what point... When did that change then for you, the the impulse? Um, it was while I was at Yale. Again, like prankster contrarian. Anytime I try to do anything, like the opposite ends up happening. You know, I just, I can't go in a straight line. Mm -hmm. So it was while I was in, in drama school to be an actress that I started thinking about writing. Mm. I started writing little plays for my friends to be in. And there's a, a student-run space called the Yale Cabaret. And we did some little plays at the Yale Cabaret. One of them came to New York. It was in the Fringe Festival. It's like the highlight of, you know, my life still. And what was that? You wrote, so you wrote yes, that play. I and wrote what it. was that play? It was a play. <laughs> It's a play called Cats Talk Back. Yes, I knew the answer to that, but I just wanted you to say it up. I've talked about it way too many times. Yep. It's almost like a joke how well, much we can't get over it. I mean, yeah. As, as now with Cats back in the uh, conversation, I feel like mm -hmm. there's cause to... Uh, is there a revival of Cats Talk Back? On the... You know, trust me, I've thought about it. <laughs> um, we almost actually tried to do a revival of it like about a mm. year ago. And um, happily, everyone who had been in the play was sort of unavailable because they were doing other things with their lives, right. um, which actually is probably a good thing. But it was just such an important formative moment for me. And I think for a lot of people in the cast, and we sort of like all keep coming back to it as a touchstone. What do you have a sense of what it is that you, what was it that made you gravitate toward writing? What do you get from writing that you didn't get from acting? Um, I really like the feeling of um, creating opportunity for other people which I feel like you're able to do as a writer. Um, as an actor, obviously, you're creating a different kind of opportunity because you're bringing something to life through your body, which is an incredible thing to be able to do. Um, but being able to see people and, and, and really lift them and sort of bring people together in a, in a very sort of active way is really fun for me as a writer, um, challenging people with something that seems impossible. And also, I think... Um, I am a very nervous, anxious person, <laughs> and so the idea of getting up on stage in front of people, like, I just found the nerves of acting, like, really, really crippling. Do you have the same kind of nerves as a writer as you, like, are you, how easy is it for you to watch one of your plays? Very hard, mm. but I can do it. And and the thing is, if I'm sitting in the back row of the audience watching a play and like I'm shaking like a leaf, 
it doesn't matter. No one cares. But if you're supposed to be center stage delivering lines and you're shaking like a leaf, it's a big problem. So right. it's it's been a happier place for me to be in terms of being able to be my full anxious self. Right. Um, but you write... You acted all through Yale, obviously, and then you went on and acted professionally. You were in TV shows and things like that. Yes. And what it was a problem. <laughs> yeah. It was a problem because I was a lab assistant on one of the CSI shows. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, as a lab assistant, you have to do all this really intricate stuff with, like, the beaker and the Bunsen burner and the tweezers. And I would be, like, shaking oh, yeah. trying to operate my tweezers. And honestly, that being a lab assistant on CSI was sort of my low point. And, you know, and not even being able to do it well <laughs> was really my low point. That, that was going to be my next question, actually, is if you had a sort of a breaking point where you said, you know what, I don't think I can, this isn't for me. It was the fact that I could not do the science on CSI without being panicked. And um, I wrote a TV pilot, a failed TV pilot. It was my first TV pilot about a miserable actress on a CSI who's sort of like third banana lab technician um, who starts solving real crimes around Hollywood. And uh, a That friend- sounds delightful. I think I would watch that show. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, it's on the, you know, trash heap of yeah, failed no, pilots. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, it was sort of like when you write something and then you realize, oh, like I'm writing something about an actress who's so unhappy that she's like finding people's lost cats around L.A., Maybe I should think about what this is, you know, saying to what I'm saying to myself with this. Right, right. Yeah. And how then, how do you do that? How do you start to make people think of you as a writer and not an actor? How hard was that transition? It does take work because I think, um, you know, people are so excited to pigeonhole other people and put them in a box and decide, okay, I know you because of these a few things that I know about you. So um, it took some time. And I think it's part of why I really had to make a break with acting and um, stop going on auditions just to be seen in a new way. And it was a process and it involved, you know, um, you know, having a few plays done. And and I I think um, it took a lot of people by surprise in a way that I was so serious about it. You know, how do you go from being an actor who's written a play to a playwright? You know, it it definitely um, was not something that happened overnight. Do you ever miss acting? I miss the good parts of it. I miss when it was going well. I miss um, the community. You know, there's such a fun feeling of being on a team of people making something and being a writer is much more lonely and you know you feel as the playwright when you go back into the dressing rooms that you're sort of like the enemy you know you've gone behind (laughs) enemy lines and all the actors are like please don't change another one of my lines please get out of here before you mess up my performance and uh so I i miss that camaraderie i think the most right and how have you found that your experience as an actor informs what you write now and how you write about it For me, it really is the starting place, character and sort of going from the inside out and feeling things physically. I I really um, feel rhythm and language, all of that in my body Um, and thinking of things in three dimensions. I try to think with the scene, is there something playable in this? Could I act this, you know? Um, and um, so for me, it's the foundation of everything. And also, I think it's an exercise in empathy because, you know, we're all in our little jobs and we often don't think about what it, what's what we're requiring of the other people mm-hmm. around us. So for me as a playwright, knowing how terrifying it is to walk out on that stage, knowing how much I'm asking of them, right. um, it, it helps me sort of check myself in terms of, um, you know, my role in the process. And taking all that into account, as well as your the idea of the, you know, 
seeing impossible things sort of manifested on stage. How does that all kind of fit together into what you think of as what is uniquely theatrical as opposed to what belongs on a TV show or what belongs on film? I'm not sure I completely know the answer to that question. I know that when I have an idea, I can sort of feel if it wants to be a play or if it wants to be a movie or if it wants to be a TV show. And I think um, some of it has to do with time. You know, time is so compressed in the theater and um, that sense of intensity um, of a sort of short period of time. You know, most of my plays, well, I guess Make Believe had a big gap in time in it, but but both of the sort of ends of it were sort of com- had a sort of compressed feeling of time and just... Right. Um, you know, how long, how long do I want to spend with these characters? Do I want to spend two hours with them or do I want to spend, you know, um, several months with them? But I, I, I really love doing theater because um, you can see the manifestation of your work very quickly. Even if it's just around a table with your friends, you can sort of feel it. Whereas, um, you know, in movies and TV, I've been caught in like endless development processes where things never, you know, see, see an audience. Right. Do you have a memory of when you first fell in love with a theater and when you... I do. Yeah. (laughs) How did you guess that I might? (laughs) I do because my grandmother took me to see Sandy Duncan um, play Peter Pan when I was a small child. I mean, I think I was like four. I have a very similar memory. I think we we had the same kind of experience. Of seeing Sandy Duncan? Oh, yeah. Sandy Duncan... Three or four, like, who even knows? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Maybe we were at the same show. Ooh, that would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say that we were. Okay, let's imagine. Yeah. Um, And, you know, when she flew out over the audience... I still remember it. I mean... I couldn't believe that could happen. We talk about the impossible, you know? I was like, this is unbelievable. Are other people seeing what I'm seeing? And then I, (laughs) I wrote to her... Um, to tell her how great she was. And she wrote back to me. Um, and uh, that was sort of one of the highlights of my life as a kid. And so <laughs> I think from then on, I just I knew that theater was a really special place and I just wanted to be part of it somehow. And what does it feel particularly meaningful to you that Grand Horizons is on Broadway as opposed to being, you've worked on uh, many off-Broadway theaters and all around the country. What, d- how and in what ways does Broadway feel meaningful to you? I think Broadway is always sort of a a dream for anyone who works in the theater. There's something so um, iconic and special about what Broadway means. Um, For me, making a play in front of people is is making a play in front of people. So it's not completely different. I, I, you know, I always want to connect with people, whether I'm in a tiny 30 seat hole in the wall or whether I'm on Broadway. But I, I do think there's something special about being part of this community and also, you know, knowing, uh, how few women are represented on Broadway, yep. um, it feels meaningful to be um, part of that. Do you have a sense of what... Uh, well, first of all, in addition to seeing Sandy Duncan fly out over you when you were you know, three years old, what other performances that you saw kind of impacted kind of your love of theater and your, uh, what you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, wow. Um, and the kind of writer slash actress you wanted to become. Yeah. I mean, my parents took me to theater a lot when I was a kid because I grew up in Brooklyn. So I saw some things as as a young, young person that really blew my mind. I mean, I saw um, M. Butterfly when I was a kid, which I mean, I had no idea what was coming. (laughs) My mom just took me. I don't know why I wasn't in school that day, but I, I remember her looking in the newspaper and seeing like a positive quote on the ad for M. Butterfly and being like, let's go to this. And I was like, sure. We had no idea what we were walking right. into. And we were completely blown away. I mean, talk about a transformation on yeah. stage. Yeah. yeah. 
with John um, Lithgow. That would have been with John Lithgow and B.D. Wong. Yes, and, yeah. yes, yes. And I, I think during the intermission, B.D. Wong sort of transformed. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And yeah. I remember seeing that and just, I had no idea. Hmm. I had no idea of the trick in, in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Just uh, being so moved and blown away. And, mm. you know, there have been a lot of performances like that over the years. Yeah. Who do you consider some of your biggest influence on, influences on you as a writer? In terms of my contemporaries or just in general? Um, or... Well, in general, but also yeah. your contemporaries. I mean, I, I'm interested or influenced, sorry, a lot by poetry and, hmm. um, and music, I think, as much as by playwriting. So, like, touchstones for me that I go back to over and over, like the poems of Frank O'Hara oh, had a yeah. huge influence on me, just that sense of sort of spontaneity and the sort of conversational feel of, of that yeah. work. Um, you know, um, and I and I read a lot of poetry while I'm writing because I can't get my brain around a novel. It's mm. like too much of a commitment <laughs> while I'm working on something. Right. Um, you know, um, and then I took, um, this is sort of basic and cliche, but my freshman year in college, I took a full year of Shakespeare, like a full, um, you know, all of the plays with a professor named Marjorie Garber, yeah, right. who's amazing and she sort of ignited in me this idea that um plays could lift into this world of um psychology and poetry and metaphor um in a way that Mm. that really um became like a a pathway forward for me in terms of how to write plays and also how to live my life what as you've watched the theater industry and broadway sort of change over the years what's your sense of sort of where we are right now as a business i mean you mentioned earlier that you're one of very few uh female playwrights with a new um, with a new play. I've one of only two by my count, you and Rona Monroe, I believe, with um, yeah. with new plays uh, on Broadway this season. What's your take on sort of how Broadway is doing with things like parody and equality and things like that? I mean, <laughs> not too well. <laughs> no, I don't mean to answer in a, in a glib way, but it, it, I do, I do um, recognize that some great strides have been made, obviously, with, you know, um, Heidi Schreck's play last year and Slave Play and, you know, there's there's some exciting, I think there's an appetite for really challenging material on Broadway in a way that people might not have anticipated a few years ago. But I also think, you know, there's so far to go in terms of the work that needs to be done and um, in terms of the representation on Broadway. So I think I feel sort of hopeful and devastated at the same time. (laughs) Have you ever thought about directing? I have. I think I annoy the directors I work with so much because I, you know, I give them like a thousand notes. Although, although playwrights, I think generally do that. So maybe I'm not. I think that that's bad. probably true. But yeah. you must feel like your notes are even more directorially minded than others, or I don't know. I I really I think um, directing is incredibly hard, and I think everyone who sits around and watches the director thinks, "Oh, I could do that," because right. it's such a public way of working. You know, you don't get to go away and figure it out and then come in and share it with everyone. You're figuring it out on your feet. So I always say like watching a director is a little bit like watching Wheel of Fortune at home. Like you're like, oh, I could solve that puzzle. But actually when you're doing it, it's much harder. So um, I've never directed and I I don't know that I would want to do it, but I I really love being an irritating voice in the director's (laughs) ear. You've worked with some great directors. What is it what sort of unites them as, like, what is the ability that you have that makes you a good director, do you find? Oh, gosh, it's such a crazy job because there's yeah. so many pieces of it. Um, 
I uh, I did a tiny little short play with Lila Neugebauer, and she was telling me how she feels like she's basically just a sponge for everybody's anxiety. Mm. Like, that's really what a director is. Yep. You just absorb yep. all the anxiety, and you have to go home and, like, wring yourself out. <laughs> and I do think that's a really good description of the job. But, of course, you know, you have to have a visual sense. You have to be good with actors. You have to have a dramaturgical sense. You know, it's just you have to kind of contain every piece of it and also... Um, time management. I mean, it's, and each director has their own um, sort of uh, special skill set or places of strength. And um, I find that um, my job as a player, it is in part to try to complement them. You know, mm-hmm. if I can see that they really got their eye on one thing, I'll try to sort of step in and, you know, be helpful somewhere else. Have you, you worked on one musical previously, working with um, Michael Friedman and the Civilians uh, with Pretty Filthy. Is that a thing that interests you, or do you are musicals a thing that you would like to pursue? Maybe I would love to pursue it. Yeah, I love musicals, and I have to say, when a musical is going well, there's nothing better. I mean, that feeling of hitting the right um, emotional beat in a musical is so incredibly satisfying. And also, as a writer, it's really nice to not have to do all the lifting. You know, you <laughs> yeah. say like, "Oh, this is going to be great. You're going to put a song here." <laughs> Um, so uh, I, I think musicals are thrilling. Yeah. And what about writing for film and television? I know you've done some of that. Tell me a little bit about sort of how you think of what you're doing, what you'd like to do in relation to the theater work that you do. I'm, you know, I've been sort of messing around in the world of film and TV for a while, um, and I really enjoy it. And I love the idea of reaching, you know, even more people with something that I do. And I also love the meticulousness of creating a world, you know, that's filmed and the sort of uh, precision and specificity you can find of really nailing it as opposed to theater, which is sort of like a little different every night and a little, you know, exciting because it's alive. But, you know, there's something about the sort of uh, nerd in me that's excited about the order of film and television that you can achieve. Um, so I'm excited to sort of keep going and see what's possible in that world. I have a film that I wrote, speaking of directing, that I'm looking to direct potentially. So that's something that uh, may be in my future. And I'd love to also create a series where, you know, we could follow characters over years and years. Because as someone who's interested in character, that's an exciting, um, an exciting idea for me. And what's next for you immediately after Grand Horizons? Um, I don't know, a trip to a <laughs> spa. <laughs> Six months in an ashram. (laughs) No, I I have a bunch of new plays that I'm working on. I have a bunch of um, commissions that I'm uh, working on and, um, you know, just sort of making the next thing. I mean, that's the crazy thing about writing a play. You, like, struggle to get to the end of the process, and then you realize, like, the next day there's going to be a blank computer screen in front of you. You're just going to start over. Right. (laughs) Um, Have there been any sort of initial ideas or pranks that you – got halfway through the process with and then thought, oh, no, never mind. We can't do this. This doesn't work. Oh, yeah, of course. I have a million, like, half-finished drafts of things. Can you describe one for us? I don't... I'm trying to think of, like, specific things that really felt like pranks. They're more just plays that didn't That didn't go anywhere? Yeah, Yeah, plays that didn't pan out. And do you start writing them? Do you do... Yeah, yeah. I start writing them, and then um, sometimes I hear them with some friends, like, around Mm -hmm. a table, and then... um, you know, I decide, like, let's not do this. Right. You know, I I mean, I have, I'm lucky in that, like, everything that I have really committed to has found some kind of an audience, um, right. you know, maybe not on the biggest possible scale, but I've been able to share it with people. Um, but, you know, I, everyone has, like, that terrible file in their computer of things that, like, just they gave up on. Has one of those ever inspired you 
with what became the next thing? Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, in each play, there's like shadow drafts that went before that are so different from the thing that went up on stage. Like with right. Small Mouth Sounds, my play that took place mostly in silence, yeah. my first draft had tons of talking in it. Like every, it was set at a meditation retreat, but everyone talked the entire time. And, it, and there were these meditation sections where you could hear people's thoughts as they were meditating. Mm-hmm. So it was like a cacophony of language. Mm-hmm. And I showed it to a friend, Evan Cabinet, who mm-hmm. um, runs LCT3, and he yeah. was like, you set up this great challenge, and then you abandoned it, like half a page later. <laughs> what is wrong with you? And I was like, oh, you're right, I did. That was a terrible... So, so there's like, you know, drafts right. that are just so different from the thing that ended up on stage with every piece I've ever done. Do you have a sense of which of your uh, plays is going to hit next in, in terms of the timeline? What? I don't. You mean which will yeah, be which will we be which will we be able, able to, to see, see next? Yeah. Next, you know, I have a play called The Movement that I'm talking with CTG about. Mm. Um, it's about the second wave feminists because mm. my mom was one of them. I grew up um, going to Ms. Magazine as a kid. My mom worked at Ms. When what? I, was I know <laughs> that's cool. I know. So I was a Ms. kid, and I've yeah. always wanted to figure out how to write about being a kid at Ms. and also my mom and her friends. Um, and her friends were like Gloria Steinem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so it was right, like a yeah. crazy, amazing group of women. So that's something that I've been trying to crack um, that um, I feel like will be uh, happening in the next in the next few years. Well, we look forward to seeing it. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for being here. Thank nice you. to talk to you. Thanks for having me. That was Beth Wall whose new play, Grand Horizons, is now playing at Broadway's Helen Hayes Theater. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, it'd be a great big help if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other theater fans find StageCraft. And if you're in New York this weekend for BroadwayCon, StageCraft will be there too. I'll be recording a live episode with the cast and creators of the upcoming Broadway musical, Mrs. Doubtfire. That's this Saturday, January 25th at 3 p.m. at BroadwayCon. And for those of you who can't make it to the live recording, the episode will be released next week. Until then, see you at the theater. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.